And I wrote those words on my hand, rapist, to remind me to call him that face to face. And that was huge. That was so, that did take the relief off of me that it wasn't my fault to call him a rapist. Hi, I'm Sylvia Beckerman. Join me today as I talk to an extraordinary woman who is changing the world by making a difference in her life and the lives of those around her. My name is Kathy Picard. I'm from Ludlow, Massachusetts. I've been a sexual abuse advocate, preventer for over 20 years, reaching out to everybody and anybody that I can to stop sexual abuse from happening to people like it happened to me. I, one person, if I can prevent that, that's what I want to do. So I want to welcome Sylvia and me. Kathy, thank you so much. And as we talked about just a couple of minutes ago when we first actually met, um, the courage that you've had to be able to come out and tell your story. Uh, one of the things that I do want to, I'm going to read because it's a quote that you have is being a victim of sexual abuse is not fun, but one of the best days in a victim's life is the day they realize they don't have to worry about being a victim anymore. It doesn't really matter how or why the abuse stops either. It just matters that it stopped. Of course, as good as this day is, it's just the beginning. Now, you know, talking about childhood sexual abuse, when you look at the statistics, they're staggering. Mm -hmm. You have one in five girls and one in 20 boys are sexually abused. The average age of abuse is 12. The average disclosure age is 44. And the average years before disclosure is 32. Um, you have told your story. You've been an advocate for over 20 years. And what people might not understand, and I know you've written a book, and along with your husband, you wrote this mm -hmm. book. It took you guys five years. The Idiot Family I Lived With. The abuse started when you were seven and lasted 10 years. Mm -hmm. The perpetrator, which as we know, the greatest percent, I, I think it's 93% of the perpetrators, the criminals who rape and abuse children are people that they know. So, can you take us back to when it started um, and how did it go along for 10, how did you survive 10 years of this? Yeah, so Sylvia, it's, it's a story. And you know, I, we don't have time to tell the whole story, but I will tell the general, as you mentioned, it happened when I was seven years old. And the grooming process started probably even younger from what I can remember. But he, you know, touching me and saying I was this pretty little girl and don't tell, keep it a secret is a huge thing. You know, these perpetrators, they tell you, keep it a secret. You're going to get in trouble. My, you know, your mother and I are going to get divorced and it's going to be your fault. 
your sisters are going to be taken away from you. Your dog is going to be taken away from you. You are a scared little girl. My stepfather, who sexually abused me, was an auxiliary cop. So I was threatened with the gun in the home. I'm going to shoot you. So of course, I'm not going to tell, you know, and in the schools, they're not telling you to tell. So I just didn't tell. Um, finding out in my adult years, my mother knew what he was doing. And that was very angry, upsetting to me that she would tell me to go places with him and she would know that this abuse was gonna happen. Leaving the house and leaving me in an unsafe home with him abusing me. I, I still can't imagine, but this happens to both mothers and fathers that they leave their kids. They don't know what to do. So you need to get out of that situation. You need to protect your child, your niece, your cousins. You need to protect them, not the perpetrator. Now, didn't you tell your grandmother? I did. The first person that I told was my Grammy, my mother's mother. And I told her when we were sitting by the pool at the age of nine years old. And I said, you know, he touches me in my private parts. And she had said, Shh, Kathy, we don't talk about that. So she emphasized what he said by not talking about it. So I shut up, you know, I didn't tell. And I did not tell from the age of nine all the way till I was 28 years old, I kept this secret. And I told my aunt Judy, my aunt Judy was like a mom to me that I wish I had instead of my mother. But I told my aunt Judy and she was petrified of him as well. So she said, Kathy, come and talk to me. Don't tell anybody else. So again, I was hushed to keep it a secret. Like and I, someone she, who, who believed you. Yeah, I mean, well, she that did, have been hard. Yeah, she did believe me, but she didn't want me to talk about it. So I didn't. And I promised her that I wouldn't tell. But my Aunt Judy passed away at the young age of 54 years old. And after she passed, I told everybody. First stop, I went to the police department and I told them just in case, because at that time I was still threatened by him. So I still kept it a secret. And But going to the police station, I opened those doors up for me. And from there, I told coworkers, I told my neighbors, I told my friends. And some people want to listen. And some people are like, why are you talking about this? That happened a long time ago. Why do you still talk about it? Well, you know why I talk about it is because the pain the trauma that you go through, the feelings that you go through, they are still there. I'm going to be 59 years old. And those thoughts, those memories that I went through are still there. But he doesn't control me anymore. Okay. So you said the abuse went on for 10 years. So from the age of seven to the age of 17, with some grooming having taken place prior to age of seven. How did it stop when you were 17? It finally stopped Sylvia at 17 years old. I had found out when I was 17 that this man who I grew up thinking he was my real father, I found out that he was my stepfather. And my mother, the way it was told to me was, I didn't have to have you if I didn't want to. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, he's not your real father. And I was like, unbelievable because here I'm thinking, all this going through and being messed with and sexually abused and thinking he was my father.
father and he wasn't. So I had told him when I was 17, I said, this has to stop. And he would beg me, Sylvia, beg me one more time, Kathy, please, one more time, and then I'll leave you alone. I go, no, it's got to stop. And if it doesn't, I'm going to tell. So you went to the police when you were 28. What was their reaction? At that time, I didn't really tell my whole story. I filled out a report. So it wasn't really talking to them, but it was filling out a report. They really didn't want to talk because at that age, I was old enough and I wasn't really filing, but I was writing documentation in case for some reason that I got killed, something mysteriously happened to me. I wanted to have proof in writing that go and check him out, go and check out and see where he was on that day. Now, I know you started doing research. Mm -hmm. One of the things that, you know, has come up in, in, in recent current events, as we used to call it when I went to school, um, are news articles of women coming forward about, and some men actually, about sexual abuse that happened years ago. And people are like, well, why didn't you say anything? Um, it's beyond the statute of limitations. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing that has come out, which is you know, some of the stats that I talked about was how long it takes someone to actually be able to talk about it. It took you from the time it stopped 11 years. Yeah. So, what was one of the first things that you wanted to look into to change? Well, I wanted to, it really came out when they started talking about priest abuse. And that was in 2002. I had read an article about priest abuse. And I said, it's not just priests that abuse, it's people like my stepfather. So that's when I went forward and they had had a number, 1-800-DIAL-A-LAWYER. So I called the number and I told them my story. And I said, I want to do something about it. What he did to me is not right. And at that point, I was still, I was angry about it because he should not have touched an innocent girl by any means whatsoever. And then I had found out by calling this lawyer number that Kathy, sorry, there's nothing you can do. The statute of limitations has run out. And at that point, I was not ready to say, walk away and say, I can't do anything. So I had checked in the statute of limitations and said, I want to do something about it. And I had found out that the statute of limitations for criminal and civil, they were way too young. I needed to change those. And there is over 6,000 bills at the Boston State House. So you have to be the squeaky wheel, hound them, call them, write to them. And that's exactly what I did. Email them. I had one aide tell me, Kathy, you're bothering me. And I'm like, too bad. You know, you need to do your job. I'm a taxpayer. This particular bills need to be looked at. So I was on a mission, didn't have a computer, didn't have a cell phone, nothing. And, you know, going to the library and doing my research and calling on these state reps and senators and the bills just weren't enough for me. So the criminal statute of limitations was the first one that I worked on. And at that time, 
A person could only be up until the age of 31 years old to go forward with a criminal suit. Criminal meaning that the person would do jail time. They would have to register as a sex offender. Well, the criminal did get extended from 31 to 43 years old. And that was on September 21st, 2006. I could not follow suit on that particular criminal statute of limitations. So you move on to the next thing. What else can I do? You know, I was, I was on a mission. You were on a mission. So, so the next one was the civil. Civil is monetary. So I had found out that the, the civil, I only had until the age of 21 years old to go forward. That is not long enough. So on June, June 26, 2014 is when the civil was extended. And that was huge. That went from the age of 21 to the age of 53 years old. And I was 53. So don't ask me why there's even a time frame or whatever, but I was just very, very happy that I could do something about it. And wasn't so that bill passed unanimously? It was. It was all the reps and all the senators. There was nobody that said no, that this was not needed. So tell so, us, I know you're going to say something, but I want to put it in a different context. What did you do the minute that bill was passed? The minute the governor signed it, and I know he gave you the pen that he signed it with. <laughs> so former Governor Deval Patrick, I did my research. I found his phone number and I called his house. And his machine said, if this is a personal matter, leave a message. If not, call my office. And I'm like, this is very personal. I want to be there at the public signing at the Boston State House when you sign that bill into law, because I am, and still today, a very visual person. So I did. I still get tears thinking about it. But I was at the Boston State House. There was 100 of us in the room. He signed the bill into law. And I didn't realize, but there was a whole array of pens. So in fact, the governor gave me two pens and those are very symbolic to me. I don't use them, I have them. And as soon as he signed that bill into law, I had texted my attorney, John Stewart, and said, I'm ready. Let's start this trial, get this action going. So we did. And after the bill was signed, I was the first one to have my trial. It was an eight panel juror trial at the federal building in Springfield and went forward with my case and my attorney, John Stewart, I am very honored to say that he took my case pro bono. A four day jury trial, you can imagine the dollars that it would have cost me. And, you know, went forward with my case and the bill passed in 2014, November 2nd, 2015, I was in that courtroom Ready to ready for a fight. And who and, won the fight? And and I got my fight. Um, my perpetrator thought that he could get a court appointed court appointed attorney, which you can't, only for criminal, not civil. He represented him himself, sounded like an idiot, acted like an idiot. Uh, who goes to a federal courthouse and sneakers and a, you know, very unprofessional to start, never mind his words. Um, but he would um, ask me questions and I answered his questions. He was probably about seven feet away from me. I answered his questions and I was no longer this scared girl. You know, what he did to me and what I told him was the truth. And these eight jurors, saw that. And I won my case. I won, I won my trial. 
you know, and I was, I put up the fight. And after my trial, there was a male that went forward with his trial. And, you know, I just paved the path for so many survivors to go forward and I would do it again, you know, if need be. And, and, you know, it was, it was also a civil trial. And to this day, I haven't gotten a penny of that money that I was awarded. But you know, Sylvia, it's not about the money. It's about accountability, accountability and justice. How did you feel when that jury said he's guilty, awarded you, no matter what it was, you probably knew you weren't going to get a penny because this guy- I got tears like I like I have now. I mean, you know the the ending of the trial when you know when you could the closing arguments. You know when he stood up and he said, looked at the jurors and said, "I want to thank you, jurors. You're men. You're women. You're young. You're old." And he even said, "I want to thank the black woman on the panel." <laughs> Who says that? That poor woman, I felt so bad for her. Who says that? Okay. <laughs> you know, but when they when they did, you know, award it to me, it's like tears. I had a picture of me as what's on my book. Um, this little picture of this little girl at age five. I brought that picture in with me. And when I sat at the desk, I kept looking at that picture. And I also brought a picture of my Aunt Judy with me. And I got the support. And I was no longer that little girl being sexually abused. I had grown into this strong, forceful person that you're never going to get rid of. She's not going away. (laughs) You know, and her not not going away. My stepfather wrote a letter to the judge, Catherine Robertson, and said, I want this to all go away. So the trial ends in November. Finally, Catherine Robertson sends me a letter that said, this is so ordered. So I had to wait even after the trial because he could have gone back and we could have had to start the whole trial all over again. So a lot of times, you know, people will tell you, get on, get on with it. It happened a long time ago, forgive and forget. How does that forgiveness part work? Uh, (laughs) I don't forgive. Um, There are survivors that can forgive. I can't. And survivors, that's okay. Maybe, Sylvia, if I got the apology when I was younger or maybe before the trial, I'm sorry. I never got that. I got, this never happened. Well, it did happen. I lived it. You never apologize. I don't forgive you. I don't forgive my mother for letting it happen. You know, there's family members, you got to let them go. You know, I've, my life now is, can't be any happier. Well, you call the book that you did write, and we'll go into that uh, in, in a few minutes, along with your husband, which had to be um, very difficult. Um, but you, you know, one of the things that, um, a person can go to, uh, and experiencing traumatic, horrific, long-term, uh, abuse is Mm self-blame. So 
tell us about some of the feelings that in in winning in taking him to trial and winning because I can't think of the other word right now mm-hmm. but was there some relief within you of realizing you weren't to blame you were a victim you were sexually abused this man was a disgusting you know whatever whatever were you able were, were some of those feelings able to kind of wash over you to to be able to understand that you were not to blame yes because i did like a lot of survivors i did self blame you know i especially when I got older, I thought, why didn't I tell, you know, you get everybody saying you should have told, you should have told. And I, it would sit in the back of my mind. And it's like, why didn't I tell? Did I like it? Is my thoughts, some of the things that I would think I should have told, but would there have been that person there to help me? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, I tried two people, age nine, my grandmother, age 28, my aunt, I didn't get the help, so it didn't stop by even telling people, but I could have told the teacher, I could have told somebody else, but I had stopped after that. Two people was enough, but I think, Sylvia, going through the trial, I knew it wasn't my fault, you know, just hearing his stupidity, him blaming me, saying that I was with so many men, that I was this promiscuous person, like putting the blame on me that that's what happened, but he still denied it. So he was doing like a twofold thing. But the best thing that I did, and I have to share this with you is during the trial, I went up on the stand, he questioned me. Judge Catherine Robertson says, okay, we're gonna dismiss for today. He said to her, I'm not done with her yet. She goes, well, she'll go back up on the stand the next day. So I thought one time was enough, right? So going back up on the stand the next day, my husband had told me that night, Kathy, if there's something you wanna say, you need to say it. You need to remember and say it. And I said, there is something that I wanna say. So I went back up on the stand and he had said the words to me, I I bet you're glad that my name was in the paper. It's all over the news. And I said, you know what? I am very happy that it's in the news, that it's on the paper, because you are a rapist. And I wrote those words on my hand, rapist, to remind me to call him that face to face. And that was huge. That was so, that did take the relief off of me that it wasn't my fault to call him a rapist. And then he said, I didn't ask you that question. Just answer the question. <laughs> and the judge, and the judge said she is answering the question. So, when did you decide to write uh, this book and decide to write it with your husband? So I always wanted to write my story, and again, it was very healing for me to write it. In a way, it was very hard. It was very emotional for both me and my husband, especially going through the times that we talk about in the book, the really hard times of him breaking into the bathroom and getting into the bathtub with me. We go into detail in the book and it was hard, but we had decided and we just started to write it. And 
because I had tried other people to help me to write it. And they said, sorry, Kathy, we, I can't help you. I can't talk about those things. These are writers. So I told my husband and he agreed. We were sitting on our magical couch facing each other. And he says, Kathy, I guess I have to write that book. And, and we wrote it together. He did most of the writing. I'm more of a speaker, but it took us five years to write the book. And I was so excited when the book came to the house because I knew that I had something, a resource that I would be able to hand out not only tell my life, but to get other people that it's okay to tell your story. It really is. And some of the things that I went through that are in the book, they, they often come back and they tell me that happened to me. And of course, people are saying it's a page turner. I have people tell me, Kathy, you kept me up till four o'clock in the morning. I said, you, you could have put it down, <laughs> but it's, it's got a lot of stuff in it. And stuff. it's a hard read in the beginning. But the ending, as, as you know me now, the ending is really good. Well, yes. So you're, you're on a mission, which I know you're not stopping. Uh, you've been on a mission for over 20 years. And probably writing the book just brought out more of how the mission needs to go. And I know that one of the one of the most important things is educating children. Mm -hmm. How do you go about doing that? Um, you know, you told two people who you thought you trusted mm -hmm. and they basically told you what he told you, which was shush, don't tell anyone. Yep. How does a child get the courage to tell someone? And if they tell someone and they go shush, don't tell anyone, how do they continue to do that? It needs to be taught to them, Sylvia. It needs to be told to them in the schools by adults to tell these children that it, it is okay to tell because these perpetrators are saying, don't tell. They need to get the permission by an adult person to tell them it's okay to tell. I'm going to believe you and you're not gonna get in trouble because these perpetrators are telling them they're gonna get in trouble. So they're not gonna tell. They need to know that this happens to other people and they're not alone. Education in the schools is so important. Child Help Speak Up Be Safe is an excellent curricular program that I believe needs to be in the schools. It's for pre-K to 12th grade, $5 a child. Do you know what that $5 can bring to that child? It's unbelievable, but it needs to be taught in the schools. These superintendents, these parents, if the parents don't want their child to be educated in the schools because they don't know what's gonna be talked about, come and sit with that child and then take that conversation home because it's not a one-time deal. You don't tell that child one time that they need to tell. You need to always tell them, tell. And if it's not that child, maybe that child can help their friend that is being sexually abused. So how do you break in to get, I know that the hardest thing that you've come up against is getting superintendents, getting educators to allow you to get the program and to accept that mm -hmm. this must be a part of awareness 
yeah. awareness. It's more than just educating, it's making them aware. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot, of course, has to be done in the home. We can't leave everything to our education system, but it has to start someplace, right. especially if 93% of the people who are the perpetrators are members of family or friends. Yep. Yeah. No, we, we allow them in the house. I mean, they walk through your front door as teachers, coaches, principals, you know, nephews, cousins, whatever. They are in your home. It's not stranger danger. It's not the scary people. These kids know who this person is, but they're afraid to tell and it needs to be talked about. I can't, I can't stress that enough. So you've even um, gone to educate uh, police departments. Mm -hmm. And so where, how does that, you know, what are you educating them in? Well, I go to the police academy and I'm very honored. My investigator, Lou Barry, has me go and talk to his his future cadets, um, you know, cadets at the police academy, as well as his college students and going in and, and I educate them. I tell them my story. I give them all the resources that I have come in contact with, which as you can imagine, a lot of resources, but I tell them to stay in a calm voice. You know, you need to be calm because if this child is telling you something or this adult is telling you something, it's hard for them to speak. So you need to be in a calm. You've got to take yourself down a couple pegs. You can't be that macho male, female, and you have to, your eye contact is very important. Let that person know that you care and you are there for them when they are ready to tell, because they may not disclose right then and there, but by you being in that state of person that you are, they, they may backtrack and come back to you and say, you know what? I have something I'd like to share with you. Well, I know that you've said you're not a political person. You're not a Republican. You're not a Democrat. You're basically an independent, depends upon who in heaven's name is running at that time. But you <laughs> sent your book to- I said, I am independent, very strong independent. But I, like I reached out to former Governor Deval Patrick, I reached out to our president, Joe Biden. And then I got his address in Wilmington and I sent a copy of my book and I'm like, I'm never gonna hear from him, but I needed to do that. You know, his wife is a school teacher and who knows? So, but I am, I was honored the day before he got um, signed in as president, I did receive a letter from him which i have framed um but and it's it's very meaningful and he thanked me for sending my book and he's got a speech problem just as i did when i was younger and he said the word your i would like to extend my sincerest thank you for sending me your your book and it was just so meaningful and for him you know i don't care he's president but he reached back out to me and he thanked me for doing that that's a sign of someone that cares. Like we talked about the police officers, people that care, a survivor that is so touching. Take that time. You just, um, you told me about a an award or a certificate of uh, 
of uh, you know what you've done that you just received today. Can you tell our listeners what it is? So today, the Massachusetts Officer Victims Assistance, they call it MOVA, for my length of service recognition, celebrating 20 years, I got a certificate and it's hot off the press. I just just had printed it. So, you know, it's something that I've been doing, Sylvia, we mentioned 20 years, but, and I don't see me ever stopping. You know, there are so many irons in the fire that are that are out there now with, you know, the book and I'm you know, my children's book is just being finished up. I'm so honored. I have a great illustrator, Deb Nicholson, and, you know, it's going to be a kid's book. And when I'd like to go into the schools and read, you know, this book to the kids and, you know, it needs to, it's, it's just such a cute book. And I, I have my little dog. She illustrated my dog, Abby, my little schnauzer is, is actually in the book. And, I'm so, I can't wait. I can't wait to get this book out into the hands of all the people. These adults can read this book to the kids. And, and so, and I'm always busy, you know, so not only do I have a kid's book going, but my husband is writing a screenplay of my book, Life with My Idiot Family, putting it into a screenplay. So never say never, you know, if you don't ask, the answer is no. If you ask, you got that 50-50 chance. And why not have your book into a movie to be able to help other people? And that's my that's my goal is to get it out there. You know, people are disclosing. Sharon Stone is disclosing. Her and her sister were sexually abused. And she wrote a book. You know, I've, I even reached out to her. Who knows? You don't know. Yeah, everybody never... puts the, everybody puts their pants on the same way. You know, <laughs> you know, it's it's like I'm not famous, but other people are, but they can help you. You have to ask, though, just like that child. You need to ask and get that help that you deserve. Well, Kathy, all I know is you are an inspiration. You have shown courage that so many do not have that you're speaking out hopefully gives other people the courage to tell someone. Mm -hmm. And if that person doesn't want, listen, tell somebody else, tell somebody else and keep on telling that these children are so abused and so scared and walk around blaming themselves. you know, hopefully if it helps one child not to go through 10 years of what you went through, um, I give you a lot of credit. And as I said, it takes a lot of courage. So I'm looking forward to the screenplay, the documentary, because it is something that, you know, uh, needs to be out there. Uh, So where can people find out more about you? Well, I'm, I'm all over Facebook. Uh, Kathy Picard from Ludlow, Mass. Kathy with a K. Um, but I'm all over Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, they can email me, kathychildadvocate at gmail.com. They email me. I'll give them my cell phone number. I'm very open. My story is out there. My story even went to Serbia. I did a Zoom one thing the COVID did is they got them more uh, up to speed on technology. So I was able to do a Zoom for students in Serbia 
which is a 23 hour flight from where I am. But, you know, I'm just looking for other people. Who can I help? You know, whether it be a book club, whether it be talking at colleges, I really want to get my book into more curricula, into the schools, into the health class, people that are going to colleges to be therapists, to be lawyers. You know, I think that this book can truly help them. My book is on mass.gov is one of the resources. So I'm even there. It's actually in the Boston State House. So it, it's out there. And, you know, everybody goes through it, but I think that my book, uh, someone that survived a brain tumor during my trial that I talk about, how does that happen? <laughs> you know, how do you have to go and get your head cut open, have a brain tumor removed right when you're going through your trial? You know, Not so many people can say that. Um, yeah. yeah. So if it, I, again, Kathy, and we didn't even hit upon all those poor children who during the pandemic and during lockdown are actually living in the same space as some of their predators and don't have anyone to talk to, anyone to turn to. So hopefully while they're on some kind of social media, they maybe get a glimpse of talking of, yeah. of the fact that they're not alone, the fact that they can say no. Kathy, I want to thank you so much for joining me here today. This is a, a subject that we need to talk about. We need to talk about it because we need to get the reality of this horrific um, abuse that children go through and, and to maybe cut down the time that they're holding this inside of themselves. Mm -hmm. Because they, they deserve to be happy like I am today. Thank you for joining me today. If you liked what you heard, please share it with another person you think would be interested. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. Join me next week when I talk to another extraordinary, inspiring woman. This has been a Life of Prey production.